Hey, welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me as always is Eric Whitehead, uh, our engineer, and uh, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's. And, uh, and with us also today are a pair of authorities on the art market. Yeah, Wendy Battleson and Julia Costantini, who, uh, among other notable claims in their careers uh, have past speakers at Grants Conference, right? Or speakers at a past at Grants Conference. You're not past present. You are, you are present here, but you have spoken in the past at a Grants event. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, with great pleasure. And uh, Evan, uh, what's new? In, uh, anything going on? In... Yeah, the, the market's actually going down. I, I didn't know I was allowed to do that anymore. It was not. It, it uh, evidently is in violation of many rules. I have a few thoughts on this, Evan. Just indulge me just a little bit. All right. For one thing, it has been 10 years or so, maybe a little more, since the last uh, train wreck, correct? Yeah. That is the decennial pattern is uh, one of, out of time immemorial. In the 19th century, it was a panic in 1826, uh, 1837, 1847, 1857, 1866. Uh, see the uh, Citibank of Glasgow, 1878, uh, the Barings Panic, right, 1890. So these things in the age of much more conservative finance and the gold standard were recurrent, no? And uh, they have been recurrent in our own time as well. And by some measures, I think, uh, rather more severe. But still, we are dealing with human beings, correct? Uh, human frailties and with, uh, and I, I mean, I, my well, I, I think my rather well-aired contention with respect to the efficient market hypothesis, Evan, is that uh, markets are just as efficient as the fallible beings who operate in them. And they are just as detached and as cold-blooded and as uh, uh, emotionless as uh, well as the conduct of romance. I say people around money are just as level-headed as our uh, 16-year-olds on a date. That's my view of the efficient markets doctrine. Now, I'm wrapping all these things up. And because we are all physicians these days, I have some views on the coronavirus. Do you care to hear them? Sure. What are you going to say, right? Yeah. Well, almost 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago, uh, World War I ended. And as it ended, began a much more lethal episode in our history. That was the Spanish flu, the epidemic of 1918, I guess, in 1919. And uh, uh, fatality is numbered between 20 million and 50 million. And uh, here we are today. We lived, right? The human race survived not without great remorse, and uh, it was horrible. The Spanish flu, I think, was uh, more devastating to more people than was the war. And uh, before that, of course, the Black Death, of course, I say the Black Death, wiped out uh, some 60% of Europe's population. And yet, here we are today, the human race. The human race is uh, most, more or less uh, invincible, I would say, in mass. Individually, different story. But I don't know about you and I and, and uh, Julia and uh, Wendy and Eric and Evan. I you you have your own thoughts on this, but I'm a New Yorker, and when I step out of the door in the morning, I figure I have like I'm one in fifty of dropping dead because of a collision with an electric bike going the wrong way, forty miles an hour on a sidewalk. That's my view of probabilities. And um, my thought on the coronavirus is that it is not the virus that's the problem. It is the economic consequences of the fear of the virus. And it is the, as long again as we're medical doctors, it's the diminished condition. Uh, it's the reduced state. What's, what do you call it when you have a reduced, uh, your body can't repel? Uh... Immune system. Ah, yes. The corporate immune system has been reduced through the corruption, and I use that word advisedly, of credit through low interest rates, ultra low interest rates, and laughably negative interest rates. Credit has been uh, misdirected. Uh, things have been done that would not have been done in the absence of free money. 
And uh, as Julia promised me, the corporate immune system has been compromised and uh, much, and because of that, much less uh, resilient in the face of an external shock, such as the coronavirus. That's my speech. It's a good speech. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Evan, what strikes you most about the, uh, I guess, was it, see, this, uh, the, the event in the 14th century was a black death. Without making light of the lethality of coronavirus, we can call this, I think, economically speaking, the black disruption, right? It's not really the black death yet. No. Uh, it won't be, but uh, it's kind of the black disruption, right? What is, the, what is that feature of it that strikes you as most interesting from market's point of view? We have, over the last 40 years, really since the <clears throat> end of the Bretton Woods era in kind of 1971, entered a level of globalization where we become reliant on very diffuse and spread out supply chains. The problem we have going forward is executives going to see the risk that they've put too much of their productive capacity in countries like China. And now that they feel that they need to diversify just for the sake of business, um, you know, uh, precaution. We saw something like this after uh, Fukushima in Japan, where there were certain plants that produced most of the auto world's microcontrollers for high-end autos. And because those plants got shut down after the earthquake and the disaster, auto executives afterwards said, this is not something that we can do going forward. So they started slowly diversifying, adding more suppliers, bringing some of the supply chain back home. 2019 was not a bad year in terms of anything. We, we didn't have a global recession. The U.S. growth, while it did slow down, was still, you know, a, a, a solid number. But it was, according to IATA, which is the International Air Transport Authority, the worst year in terms of contraction for uh, air freight since the crisis. So we already saw a little bit of Globalization. So that was trade warish stuff, was it not? The, the trade war featured a little bit into this, but this is we're talking about global. So, like, if if we cut out China a little bit, we'd still import other stuff from other countries. So it's not necessarily like global trade would fall. It's just the places that we import from might change. But we actually saw a, a decline in global trade last year, at least in terms of air freight. So we we are seeing perhaps maybe a little bit of deglobalization now. And globalization over the last 30 or 40 years was one of the forces that actually held down prices and has kind of, you know, underridden this yeah. boom in low interest rates. Well, uh, the, the question yeah. going forward is if we're going into a period where just out of precaution, because businesses have seen that they can't keep their operations in order if one of their suppliers gets shut down in China, what does that mean if we start insourcing some of that production back home? Or if we, to, to me, that's a big question and I'm not sure what the answer is. Right. Well, um, which brings us to art. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the world that really uh it's all well and good to have microprocessors and uh, cell phones and uh beans and uh steel ingots but really without art where are we julia costantini um, well i i would agree i think uh art has to be inspirational and aspirational and i would say that um even though we will talk a little bit about this today and art being treated in many cases as an asset class. It's still primarily an investment of passion and collectors are in pursuit of their passion. And when you look at scarcity and things that are rare and what people are trying to collect and buy, that's sort of reflected also in what we're going to talk about. Wendy Battleson, uh, famously or infamously in the stock market, uh, people have been known to chase trends and uh, buy not necessarily what is uh, scarce and value-laden, but rather what's going up. Now, does this uh, human tendency also prevail in the art market? And uh, how might one profit from it or by going in? Very much so. And, and I think what's going to be interesting to see over the next several weeks and several months is whether we see the same thing in the current economic matters that happened in 2007 and 2008 with the financial um, issues we had then, where 
you saw a flood of people, particularly people involved in Wall Street, moving into areas of art that were not otherwise um, exposed. So they were focusing on post-war and contemporary art in the next few years after 2000, 2008, um, 2007, 2008, the prices really increased materially and then they flattened off. So people were able to really make some decent returns during that period of time by pulling money out of real estate, out of the financial markets. And perhaps we'll see the same thing here, where with the decrease in the financial markets, perhaps people go into more undervalued areas, which could be modern American art. It could be old master paintings, which are currently at relatively reasonable levels. Uh, uh, Wendy, I think you've not done credit enough to how much art appreciated, at least contemporary art did, because this is the most surprising thing you've ever told me. Can you give us a sense of like what maybe a Picasso went for in 07 and maybe what it went for in 2010, 2011? Because I was shocked when you told me this. Yeah, Picasso was one of those artists that it was very prolific. So there was a lot of material that was able to be traded during that period of time. But the prices sort of surprisingly, along with the volume, increased oftentimes tenfold over the course of just a few years. Andy Warhol increased even more than that, where you may have sold a Warhol in 2005 for a few million dollars, Ultimately, it was selling for 50 million, maybe 70 million dollars. So I don't know that we're going to see that level of increase, particularly in modern American art or in old masters. But I do think there's opportunity for it to increase. There in was value. A, a, a Edwardian era banker. His name was James Stillman, who ran National City Bank, now Citibank. And he said that every time he was tempted to buy a work of art, he mentally computed on the back of the canvas the amount of foregone interest that his investment would cost, and he stopped and didn't buy the art. That was not. Evan, that was not the thing to do in 2007 with regard to a Picasso, to not do that metal arithmetic on the back of the canvas. Yeah, but uh, doing the math today, I think the 10-year yields 1.2%. I'm not yeah. sure how much interest you're forgoing anymore. Now, Julia and, and Wendy are co-founders of uh, Art Strategy Partners. And uh, as you might have conjectured from uh, Julia's voice, she was born in Bayonne, New Jersey. <laughs> No, actually, she's at Oxford and uh, fluent in Italian and French. And uh, and uh, Wendy is herself, although I think uh, as American as uh, uh, Major League Baseball, and, uh, is a worldwide traveler and uh, was a holdup for some time, I think, in Switzerland, where she did not actually become a gnome, but actually spoke, spoke to gnomes, correct? I, I did indeed. <laughs> um, so uh, what is, uh, uh, Wendy and, and Julia, what might be your candidates for... Uh, categories of the art market that perhaps now are uh, underappreciated, uh, that uh, perhaps are relatively cheap and that uh, might just catch fire? Relatively cheap, I think, is the slight issue. But um, <laughs> I think there's some interesting categories emerging where collectors are really sort of leaning in, and that's female artists and also African-American artists. And this trend is apparent both at auction and with primary dealers, and also exhibitions, which are now showcasing these new talents. And some of them are talents that have been around for longer, but they've just taken a longer time to break into the market and achieve prices over two or three or four million dollars. Um, some names which could be interesting, um, featured also in an exhibition at London's Whitechapel Gallery at the moment, Cecily Brown and Bridget Riley, who are two British painters. Um, they've both suddenly really taken off and are commanding prices between two and four million for their works. Um, two US artists, Nicole Eisenman and Dana Schultz, um, also doing well and breaking through in that category. This, this figures into the political zeitgeist as well, does it not? Yes, it does. I mean, I think it's there's no real reason 
why it's taken longer for these artists. I mean, Bridget Riley is in her 80s and she's a sort of revered figure now, but it's just what does taken... she What does she say about this uh, late flowering commercial preoccupation? I haven't actually asked her, but I would <laughs> imagine that she probably has been so focused on the development of her work and the different iterations of her work through the sort of decades, because she's been practicing for a long time, that she probably thought she was always going to break through and on track because I think artists are quite single-minded that way and they not all of them necessarily tune in to the sort of commercial yeah. rewards. You know, there was a there was a, a review in, uh, in The Spectator, London, and it was a review of a book about um, uh, an art dealer and, uh, and a talent scout and uh, this guy, I forgot his name, but uh, he, he lived in the, uh, uh, you know, the mid-20th century. And uh, he was one for cultivating talent and for encouraging talent that happened to be on uh, uh, a little bit out of vogue. And uh, he would write to uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, depressed, middle-aged, neglected artists and say, what you need, what you need is more grandiosity. And what I would suggest is uh, waking up and, uh, and playing some Berlioz, maybe Symphony Fantastique and, or hitting the bottle. But grandiosity is a thing. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, and actually... it goes to the rest of us too, no? Eric, what do you think? Alcohol is disinfected. I think it's right for the time. Okay, but, what about, what about for example, <clears throat> watches? Now, you, you have, everyone has a cell, cell phone here? Yeah, I suppose we all do. So we all know what time it is, right? And the cell phone's never wrong. Wristwatches, I have a, a, a rather grandiose wristwatch here, which is can't tell, the, can't tell it what time it is. But um, what about wristwatches? I understand that is a thing, that's a, that's a category. It's, it's a really interesting area, and, and it's one of the areas that Julie and I have been following quite a bit. So unlike flat art, watches have a very liquid market. Um, there are a few things that are really hot in watches right now, which are sport watches, so things that divers or pilots or even scientific watches that are stainless steel are really just going crazy at auction. What, what, what prices do they command? Anything from 10000 to a million. You can really buy at any value. Made when? It all over the place. You can, so you can, you, can go to, you can go to Tiffany and buy a watch, then sell it at a, at a gallery Depending, same day? De, the, the key with selling at um, auction or at a fair, which is usually where these transactions happen, is that the watch needs to be in original condition. So the ideal situation is you go into your father's home, you pull out a drawer, there's a box in there, and there's a Rolex that he purchased 40 or 50 years ago, and it has not been touched. It's in pristine condition. It's never been damaged. It's never been repaired. That Those happens, are the right? watches. That happens, yeah. I've seen it once or twice on Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> 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 Indeed. But the sports watches are really popular, more so than the dress watches. Um, but the gold standard for sport is Rolex, and the gold standard for dress watches is Patek Philippe. And those sell incredibly well. And, and the neat thing about these is that if you have the right international expert advising you, you can potentially increase the value in your watch by four to five times within a 12-month period. That is a oh, huge 45 increase. 45 times? Four to five. Oh, four to five. Don't get too excited. <laughs> well, I... Four to five isn't bad either, right, Evan? What does the advisor tell you to do with the watch? You buy it and then you put it in a box for a period of time and then you resell it. <laughs> <laughs> so this watch has never, we never ran this watch faster than 40 miles an hour. It's been in the garage for- <laughs> It's actually a good analogy. It's very similar to um, to the car industry. Well, here's, here's something that is so hopelessly out, but it ever be in again, which is so-called brown furniture, formerly known as antiques. No. Never coming back, right? No. It's like, uh, Value stocks. 
All right, whatever. So you're saying my Biedermeyer table is never going to appreciate it? I sadly know. <laughs> I think you should enjoy it nonetheless. It's a very nice table. <laughs> um, so we're recording this on uh, February 28th. Next week is um, the Armory Art Show in New York. I'm not going to ask you guys to predict what's going to happen in terms of auctions or prices there, but we have a couple things hitting. One, the stock market's down 10% in a very short period of time. And two, we're starting to get people scared of viruses. Just in terms of how you guys have seen this play out on the past, in terms when psychology starts changing, well, how do you expect this to begin affecting, I guess, attendance in art shows, prices, willingness to bid? Uh, I mean, uh, buying art is a large purchase that's often very emotional. Well, I would say straight up that the, you know, the uncertainty in the stock market and the fear of the virus uh, are two slightly different things at a psychological level that would impact purchase. Um, I think the market uncertainty is the one that's going to affect pricing and auctions more than anything. And recently in the February auctions in London, they were much softer than last year. So year on year, there was a decline of 22%. There are several factors there, obviously, also Brexit, which is a bit of an unknown, even though it's resolved and the deal hasn't been finalized. But it's great, right? It's fantastic. <laughs> um, and so um, I, I think several factors played in there, but it was also the absence of the Chinese at auction and the uncertainty around the virus. We've also seen events being cancelled recently. The Hong Kong Art Basel Fair was cancelled. The Salone del Mobile in Milan in April has just been cancelled. A watch fair in Geneva in April equally has just been cancelled. And Sotheby's just announced that they're moving the April Hong Kong sales of modern and contemporary art to New York. And it's their way of continuing to service the Asian clients, um, but relocating the sales to a place which is still considered sort of safe. Has, um, has the president heard about this relocation? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we can send him an email or a Twitter and ask hey, him. Hey, tell, tell us about uh, about diamonds. And I ask particularly about diamonds because uh, it's a, isn't it fascinating, Evan, that uh, uh, there is this uh, uh, fabulous technology that uh, can make gemstones that to even the expert eye look for all the world as if they were cut out from a rock. Plasma deposition, I believe, is the term for that. Uh, anyway, so, so this is alchemy in action, right? And yet I understand that uh, that uh, gemstones are a very fetching portion of the art market, no? Well, they are in certain areas. So white diamonds have actually softened, particularly in the sort of low to middle end of the market. Like I think many areas when there's uncertainty, it's a little softer. But colored stones, so colored diamonds like fancy pink, yellow, blue, are absolutely covetable and people are getting extraordinary returns. Covetable. And, I find so many things fit that description. Um, <laughs> good. <laughs> and I would add that you need the sort of magic carrot, so sort of 5, 10, 20, and also other stones. So emeralds, sapphires, rubies, um, equally commanding incredible prices. I was talking to a very respected diamond dealer yesterday and he told me about a client who'd purchased a blue diamond from him seven years years ago for two and a half million dollars and he can sell it today between 10 and 11 very mm. easily and he also showed me one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen which was a Pariba tourmaline from a mine in Brazil which is now closed so again the scarcity and the uniqueness of these stones say the made, name of the object again a Pariba tourmaline uh, explain what, what might that be it's a very rare blue green stone that oh. came out of this mine in Brazil and also some mines in Africa, but very rare and very hard to find. Oh. Hey, the two of you, uh, Julia Costantini and Wendy Battleson at uh, 
uh, in your art strategizing, uh, know a little bit about the business of borrowing money against the collateral of your wall power, right, of your paintings. So this is, this, Evan, this, is, this has been done now and then in Wall Street, is it not? The application of leverage to assets? With varying results and success, yes. <laughs> uh, well, how does it work in art? Uh, Wendy, how do you how do you go about uh, hawking or not hawking? Uh, how do you go about leveraging? So there are a few there are a few different ways to do it, and banks will talk about how they do art loans. They're typically doing art loans for their clients that are already existing clients that have assets under management at the banks. So they'll call them an art loan, but it really is just a relationship loan. Outside of that grouping, there are a handful of boutique lenders who will do basically hard money lending. So if I have a Rothko on my wall and I have no other assets. Those are the companies that will lend money to me for that um, collateral. And they're typically getting interest rates anywhere between about 8 and 15%, usually in the region of about 8 and 12% per year, which is a pretty sizable return for the and, lender. And what uh, percentage of the collateral estimated value will you lend against? Typically 40 to 50%. It would be rare for them to go above that, um, that threshold. And the loans are normally short term. They're six months to maybe one to two years. Can you get a second mortgage out of painting? Uh, <laughs> if you get very creative, you can. <laughs> that's going to that's gonna happen, right, Evan, sooner or later? Sure. Might even have paintings on the blockchain. At Barron's, uh, years and years ago, I, we ran a story. This is back in the 70s. We ran a story about uh, another real estate bubble. And the, um, the headline will, will uh, describe very accurately the state of the market and the nature of the story. And the headline was House of the Seven Leans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, I don't know, what else? Uh, Don Marin, the late Don Marin, was a very, very successful Wall Street figure. He headed, uh, I think, Payne Weber for a time. He was, uh, Mitchell Hutchins was one of his firms. He was, I think, perhaps, if I remember correctly, he was uh, instrumental in the merger of Payne Weber and Mitchell Hutchins. I don't know. Mitchell Hutchins was a, a kind of a highbrow research operation, Payne Weber, a uh, brokerage house that uh, used to sponsor WQXR, Symphony Hall. Remember this? I yeah. do indeed. Yeah. So Don Marin was uh, was uh, that rarity, the Wall Street aesthete, who was, uh, uh, I guess, uh, had some connoisseurship in his bones and made a, a lot of good uh, decisions and uh, some taste, and he acquired a big art collection. No? And w what does the prospective sale of the Marin collection tell us about the state of the market and the nature of the institutions of the market? So I think it's uh, obviously a very interesting direction that the executives have gone in. Um, and we see it as a sort of... Now what have they done? What are they choosing? By, by deciding to sell privately with three very major dealers as opposed to at auction in a ah. public context. And it's not the first time this has happened. We see it as a sort of continuation of the sort of blurring of the lines between auction houses and major galleries who are sort of extending the reach of their services and operations. The precedent to this kind of sale was actually a very important dealer called Eliana Sonneband in 2008, and she had an absolute trove of works. And the first came on the market for sale valued at 600 million, and a dealership of three called GPS Partners, Giraud, Pizarro, and Segalo took 400 million and sold it, and Gagosian took the remaining 200 and sold that. And then more works came up in 2015 at Chrissy's. And there was also Pace Wildenstein in 1995, who won the rights to sell the collection of a TV producer called Mark Goodson. And they were 50 modern masterpieces. I think the interpretation we have is that um, the Don Marin direction is triggered by several factors. Perhaps the widow and the executors liked the idea of privacy and discretion. Don Marin was an extremely 
talented and aesthetic collector who collected the best masterworks. And the reality is there's a very small number of people who will buy them and can buy them. Mm. And it's rumored to be really about 12, 15 people. These people are very well known both to the auction houses and the galleries. And the, the rumor is that Pace, Gagosian and Aquavella have already reached out to 12 of these clients and, you know, given them first dibs on the works, even before they're on exhibition. And some have already been sold. Steve Wynn has just acquired two of the Picassos in the collection for $105 million. And there's a Clifford Still and a Picasso, um, actually, sorry, a Twombly and a Picasso from the collection that's also rumored to have already been sold. Another little clue, perhaps, is that um, Fiden are doing a luxury book to accompany the sale. The owner of Fiden is Leon Black, who, as you know, is a very important collector who collects the best of the best. So he's probably quite closely involved in the acquisition of some of these works, too. Hmm. Last year, well, first of all, Wendy and uh, Julia, you guys have a lot of experience with the auction houses, having actually worked at both uh, at them. Um, last year, we had one of the large auction houses actually being taken private in a in a LBO transaction. What what does it mean for I guess auction houses now that we're blurring the line between art dealers and auction houses, and also price discovery now that more of the sales, especially the high end sales, are moving towards art dealers where the transactions are pre negotiated. There, there's not an auction. Yeah, it's, it was it was interesting to see Sotheby's be sold last year, and and it gives. Some Sotheby's a lot of flexibility. Before that, as a public company, they'd have to disclose everything about their finances, how many guarantees they were doing, how much risk of those guarantees they were backing off to third parties. They now have the flexibility to operate in a much more discreet way, the way that Christie's and Phillips operate as private companies. But to Julia's point, the blurring of the lines between the dealers and the auction houses is um, is a challenge for the auction houses. I think having the Marin collection go to a group of dealers was um, a bit of a surprise for the auction houses. They had just presumed that they would be bidding against each other to win that business. And instead, they were bidding amongst each other, but then also these third parties who were able to offer similar, if not perhaps even better financial options. So I think there's going to be a lot of change in the marketplace as a result. And what does that mean, I guess, for price discovery and um, price for high-end art? It's it's impossible to tell because it's really based on what the um, supply of the art is. That's always the issue. And that's why it was so critical for the auction houses that they win a state property because it's typically seen as being the most desired property because it's been held by someone for a long period of time. So it hasn't been traded on the open market and deemed to be effectively burnt. It's nice and fresh and it usually means increase in prices. So without a state property, it's difficult to say what's going to happen with the pricing. Okay, well, Julia, what do you say to the proposition that uh, just as, for example, Sir Joshua Reynolds had his seasons, um, you must have a Reynolds, and then who cares, a hack society painter? What do you say to the proposition that Picasso himself will have a bear market, that this this obsession with Picasso has led to a grotesque overvaluation. I'm just, just putting this up for comment, a grotesque overvaluation of an aesthetic that will uh, t- uh, will have its moment and uh, there'll be a time when Picasso will be cheap again. Possible? I think everything's possible. I think the, the key really lies in the audience of the future and their collecting tastes. And if you draw an analogy today with sort of what's powering the luxury goods market, which is really the increase in sales there is driven totally by millennials and Gen Z, and many of them from China and Asia. I think looking at the market and that demographic, whether they're in the US, which is the most important art market in the world, or coming from Europe, there's a change in taste. So I think contemporary artists are definitely going to be more 
of interest to this generation and audience. Um, and I think it remains to be seen what's going to happen to these, you know, important collections with a lot of Picassos. And maybe there is going to be a slight drop in desire for the Picassos, um, but I think they will still remain in the masterworks category. The best examples of his work will still have that iconic status. And I think that going back to the point about reserves of value, his artists like Rothko and Clifford Still and Picasso, those are the names at the masterwork level that are sort of like resilient. It's not too soon to uh, Rothko a master? Don't you have to have some, some... No, I mean, they're described as masterworks quite often in catalogs because of, I think, the importance of the artist and the, you know, the, the paintings obviously being in important collections and museums all over the world, but also the appreciation of his work from top collectors. Yeah. Okay. Hey, um, Evan, it's not just uh, so-called artists who make art. I mean, certain financial periodicals uh, are known, actually, for their uh, contemporary art. And some even put it on their front page of their publication. Yes. Now, uh, I would, and, and before we close this uh, marvelous podcast, I would like uh, our authorities, Wendy Battleson of Art Strategy Partners and her partner at Art Strategy Partners, Julia Costantini, to appraise aesthetically, if not uh, commercially, the uh, uh, the two uh, uh, masterworks might be overdrawn, but uh, the two uh, fascinating pieces that uh, appear in this current issue of Grants, no? So, Julie, will you begin? Why, why don't you take a look at the uh, is it, uh, page? What is that uh, page? So, 10? on page nine, ah. um, there's a very interesting illustration with the caption, what the oh. heck, Harry, we just dye it green. Um, and, what does, what do, can you describe the... Uh... Yes, and it's um, two gentlemen looking over some wire fences at factories with emissions. <laughs> so um, I think it's very apropos and uh, clearly about greenwashing. <laughs> but I have to, and I think it's, it's very well done. I have to say my absolute personal favorite, though, was the illustration you had that coincided with the Grants Conference last year in April, where there was a image of you dressed as Rupert Bear addressing the audience of gnomes in Zurich. <laughs> yes, well, they didn't really understand. Oh, I, when do you understand? You, you have been in the position of talking to gnomes and they're not, seem to, not seeming to understand. Uh, very true. I was there for seven years <laughs> roaming the hills. Well, uh, Wendy, when I ask you to take a look at page one of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, one of our sponsors today, and uh, first of all, can you describe the scene to the, uh, the, the... Hold it up to the microphone so people can do the... <laughs> Okay, so, it, so. It's a fabulous scene of an astronaut on the moon looking at a Mike Bloomberg 2020 sign that has been posted there. And what I'm more on the financial side, so I would like to offer for this particular drawing um, $10,000. May I buy it? Ooh, uh, $10,000. What do you think, Evan? Do we need to have an auction? <laughs> I think auction houses are kind of de uh, passe now. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, Wendy, if anyone tops the $10,000 bid, and, and ladies and gentlemen, uh, the podcast audience, you are welcome to uh, to weigh in on this. Perhaps 10000 seems to you, as does to me, slightly derisory for this fabulous. <laughs> I think uh, we should do a timed uh, bidding session, and we should set a date for closing better offer. <laughs> How about... Uh, 
I'm like, give him some time, maybe 50 years. <laughs> put it in a box for a while. To create panic and compulsion. Oh, should we put this in a drawer? Indeed. <laughs> in cellophane wrap and very carefully placed. <laughs> and never been viewed. Precisely. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Fabulous. Well, um, Wendy Battleston, thank you. And Julia Costantini, thank you. What a delight to have you here. Eric, well done. Evan, um, terrific. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. I'm Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 